Welcome to the Real Estate Club podcast, Cash on Cash Connections. This is Luke Schammel, and I'm joined by my co-host, Blake Ripley. And today, we have an awesome conversation for you with Tim Peer. Tim gets into how he went from being a framer to eventually managing a global REIT portfolio. So we hope you enjoy. You ready, Blake? Yeah, let's give it a go. Tim Peer, welcome to the Real Estate Club podcast, Cash on Cash Connections. We're excited to have you and looking forward to today's conversation. Great. Thanks, Luke. And Blake, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you today. Of course. And one of the things I'm curious about, Tim, is just growing up, how did you get interested in real estate? You know, uh, my first career, I did my both my undergraduate and my graduate work at the University of Wisconsin. And my first job after getting out of uh, Wisconsin with a BBA in finance and let's say the early 80s, I know I'm dating myself, so was at a bank in Milwaukee. And it was a great learning opportunity because I worked for a large institution and I was in the credit area. So I underwrote lots of different types of loans, commercial loans. So it was Midwest, manufacturers, financial services. But one of the areas also I underwrote was real estate. The bank I worked with, now it's US Bank, did a lot of real estate lending in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and um, Illinois at that time. So I got involved in underwriting primarily construction loans. And that's how I got kind of interested in real estate because it was kind of a mix of finance and a hard asset. Uh, so that's really kind of how I got interested in it. And then I decided to go back to school as you're getting started with your careers, you know, different things will happen at your company where you'll have to make a decision. You know, do I go this way or do I go that way? And I was at this bank that was going through, had some issues with international loans. And so that put some pressure on the bank. All hiring stopped, advancement stopped. And I was like, listen, I've been here for three years, time for a change. That's when I decided to go back to school. So I had three years of work experience in real estate. I liked it. And that's when I came back to the University of Wisconsin and got my graduate degree in real estate. So what was that like going back to school after having worked in the real world for a while? So as you say that, Luke, you're making the assumption that you and Blake are living in the unreal world. <laughs> that's, that's true. You approach it from a different perspective, right? So you've been working for three years. So when I came back to school, to me, it was like a job. And that's kind of the advice I give to students when you come back to school. Graduate school or business school, it, it sounds simplistic, but we're teaching you to be a plumber, right? We're teaching you a trade. How do I take these students and teach them to become the best plumber they can. Because when you go get back out, most people go to business school, you know, it's a career change or they want to gain more skills, but they want to get out and they want to do something different and they want to advance. And so when I came back and I looked at going to school, it was a job. You know what? It wasn't, yes, it was to meet people, but it wasn't to live away from home for the first time or anything like that. It was a job. So I was there to meet people and learn as much as I can. And I treated it like a job. Did you have a lot of colleagues that were in similar situations to you or did you feel like your situation was unique? Yes, so I came, when I came back, um, again, this would have been in the late 80s, the program, the real estate program, they called the graduate real estate program, there were probably 30 of us at least, maybe a few more, who were all getting either our MBA or our MS in real estate. So it was a, a little bit larger at that time. Uh, so 
I did get a chance to meet a number of different people and I've stayed in contact with those people over a long-term basis, which is advice I would give to all of you. Um, as you know, coming out of the real estate program at Madison, there are two things. There are connections you make with the people that you're going to school with now, but you're part of a bigger Wisconsin family of the Real Estate Alumni Association that you need to take advantage of um, on a long-term basis, which will probably lead into kind of my the start of my real estate career after I finished school in the early 1980s, uh, called the late 1880s. So what was your first job coming out of the graduate program? Well, it's interesting because I graduated at a similar time in terms of what was happening from a real estate perspective. That is what's happening today. So if you think through today, what's happening in kind of domestic real estate or global real estate, it's going through a correction, right? We've gone through the pandemic and a recession, and we know that demand is slow. We're still probably gonna work through some supply issues, but it's gonna put downward pressure on rents and a lot of different property types, and it's gonna put a downward pressure on value. Now, if you flash back to when I graduated um, in the, it was late 80s, call it 1990, real estate was going through the same thing. There was actually, I would say it was worse. It was a real estate depression way too much supply and we had a mild recession, but there's just way too much supply. And so it was really hard to get a job, really hard. You know, the people that I went to school with, um, as you think of how people are getting out today, they wanna to be in development, they wanna be in acquisitions, brokerage, asset management, leasing. At that time, nearly 1990s, you were either gonna be in asset management, um, workouts, no, there was no development. There were no acquisition jobs out there, right? Or you're doing appraisal work. And so I graduated. They were just really tough to get a job. So I moved out to Seattle. I always wanted to live in Seattle. I thought it was an interesting place because you couldn't get a job anyplace else. I moved out to Seattle because the market was still doing pretty well. Microsoft was just getting going. And there was capital flowing from Asia, which was helping that market. And my first job in real estate, again, I had work experience, had an undergraduate, had my graduate degree. My first job in real estate was hands-on. I was a framing. I was a framer. Okay. I was helping build a condo project in Kirkland, Washington. And so I was on the framing crew. I was hauling lumber, pounding nails, cleaning up the job site. That was my first real estate job. So, you know, you got to get started somehow. And that's how I got started. So then through a connection, a real estate, a Wisconsin real estate uh, alumnus talking to a lot of people, I got a job doing commercial real estate appraisal work in Seattle. So I did valuation work up and down the West Coast. At that time, the banks were doing a lot of valuations every six months because the real estate portfolios were so troubled. The banks, because the regulators had to do valuations every six months, so I did appraisal work in Seattle, in the Seattle area, Portland, San Francisco, LA, and I appraised all different property types, high-rise office, suburban office, apartments, retail, hotels, specialty. So it really gave me a great opportunity to learn a lot about markets and value real estate um, in these different markets. So that was kind of my first, you know, kind of real uh, job after, after graduate school. 
And what is something that you learned from that appraisal experience that you think benefited you throughout your career? Because one of uh, the previous guests we've had on the podcast, um, Michael Casey, just talked about how his experience in acquisitions uh, allowed him to see a lot of different property types and learn a lot of different things, which I think is something that you can definitely learn in doing a job like appraisal as well. It, that's an interesting because this will lead into kind of my the next chapter of my career, and it's interesting you should say Mike Casey, um, because I worked with Mike Casey. Um, small world. It is a small world. So I did, from an evaluation perspective, being an appraiser, I did get to see a lot of different types of real estate. And the positive thing uh, about doing appraisal work is you saw a lot of different properties, but you really had to understand value. And that was the combination of thinking about value is thinking about putting together a pro forma, but also think about the supply and demand conditions because you were making um, kind of the decisions, what was gonna happen with rents, what was gonna happen with vacancy expenses, things like that. But also think about kind of the construction costs, comps, things like that. So it really kind of gave me a great understanding of the nuts and bolts of value in terms of real estate and location and things like that. But I, after doing it kind of several years, decided that I wanted to kind of apply some more of my finance background. So I was a combination of real estate and finance. And that was one of the things I really liked about my graduate degree. I loved real estate because it was a hard asset, but you could overlay this kind of this finance piece to it, um, which kind of played of a, a, a more of a kind of a, a technical area of how I think about things, values and numerically. So that leads to my Casey. So I like doing valuation work and this kind of leads to the, the, the next chapter. I was still looking and through some, uh, someone I worked with who is an appraiser who also went to Wisconsin, he had left and he had gone to work with a, um, a mortgage originator in the Seattle area. And he gave me his context. He said, Who's, this is who I've been talking to. And as I kind of talked to more people because I wanted to make a change, I found an individual who was involved in the REIT industry, real estate investment trust. And actually one of my projects in graduate school was we created a REIT. Um, individual family had some apartment buildings and we created a REIT based on a portfolio of apartments. So I knew a, a little bit about how the REIT structure worked. Again, REITs are real estate investment trust. Uh, they're just companies that own a portfolio of real estate and they're either traded on a public exchange or they're private. So this person I spoke to ran a REIT portfolio. He was a money manager. And this was called it 1992. And the REIT industry was only this big, $6 billion in market cap. And I wanted to make a change. And this individual I spoke to had just lost his analyst to Wall Street, to an investment bank on Wall Street. And he, he managed, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars and he needed an analyst to help follow these companies. Again, read industry was pretty small. So it was through a real estate alumni, a guy I worked with that I got this connection. And this connection took me to Chicago to work with a firm I worked at for a very long time called Heitman. And that's where I got to know Mike Casey who was also went through the programs. Mike was in acquisitions and I think he was transitioning to client service. And I was in this small part of Heitman that managed a real estate securities portfolio of a couple hundred million dollars. And we had an interesting list of clients. Again, I was a, an analyst, but our clients were some very 
um, sophisticated institutional investors in terms of endowments and foundations and some pension funds. At that time, pension funds and institutional investors were kind of struggling with their real estate portfolio and what to do. But there was this other group of institutional investors that were thinking about kind of what's next? How do we take advantage of, call it the carnage in the real estate industry? So I got involved in the REIT industry when it was really small, but all these companies were just about to come public. And there was some very sophisticated money that was getting involved in REITs. So I joined Heitman, moved back to Chicago, where I was an analyst, and I helped underwrite many of the REITs you see in the market today. They're some of the largest companies. Again, the market went from $6 billion. Today, it's over a trillion dollars in equity capitalization. But I underwrote the Simons, the Avalon Bays, the Boston Properties, the public storage. So the largest, some of the largest owners uh, of real estate in the country today and some of the best real estate, I was like on the front lines deciding what we were going to invest in and what we were not going to invest in. So tell us more about the underwriting experience in that process. So it's interesting that the underwriting experience relative to a company in a REIT is similar but different. So my valuation was an appraiser, you were underwriting an asset, trying to figure out what is this office building worth? What are the rent assumptions I'm gonna make, the vacancy assumptions, the cap rate assumptions? I had to move from looking at a building to looking at a portfolio of buildings. So again, under road, I don't know, a 60 story office building in downtown Seattle. Now I had to underwrite a company that had 20 of those buildings. And I could never do a full appraisal on those buildings. There's just not enough time, there's not enough information. So you had to use that appraisal kind of value intuition, but now apply it to a portfolio, uh, which was a great learning experience. And having a background in appraisal helped me, you know, I really understood how office leases work, could ask the right questions of a company in terms of what was happening in the portfolio but also understand their strategy. So I had to take um, underwriting buildings to underwriting a portfolio with much more limited uh, information, but it, it was a great kind of transition point to underwriting companies. So thinking back to the start of your career in the REIT industry, you know, you said it was such a small industry compared to what it is now. You know, at that time, could you tell that REITs would be the next big thing in the real estate industry, or is it more in hindsight that you realized that it was such a good opportunity at the time? You know, um, lucky or smart, I take lucky any day. I think I was just lucky to be involved in an industry that was going from 6 billion to one and a half trillion, where there were 50 companies and now there are 100, I should say 150, maybe 200 REITs in the US across all the property types. So uh, I think you always have to look at what's changing in the industry, in the real estate industry, because it is constantly changing and evolving. So I started as an analyst, underwriting companies, and then I became a trader, trading these stocks. Then I became a portfolio manager. So I had to think through a portfolio of companies kind of differently versus an individual asset. I had to think through kind of more from a finance perspective. How do these companies relate to each other? How are they going to perform? and allocate my capital, you know, across the different companies and across the different strategies. Um, so I, hopefully that answers your question, Blake. Yeah, definitely. So when you're underwriting these portfolios of properties, 
obviously you have to make assumptions and you don't have perfect information and you can't, you don't have time to appraise every single one of these properties in this portfolio. So how do you go from ma making an assumption to making a decision on whether to acquire or dispose of an asset within that portfolio? First, you will never have perfect information. Uh, I, so when I, again, I, as I mentioned, I was at Heitman, I was an analyst. Then I became a portfolio manager, managing a portfolio in the US and globally of about $6 billion. And I oversaw a business unit, so I ran the whole REIT team. And I had traders who worked for me or trading stocks every day. And they generally, they worked a relatively set period of time, you know, because the markets are only open. You know, we'd start trading at, you know, I don't remember what it was, 8 or 8.30 in the morning and the NYSE would trade at 3 in the afternoon. And I remember one of my senior traders coming to me and saying, you know what, I could never do your job. I said, why? He said, my job ends. I, I trade during the day and it's done. I can't trade when the market closes. He said, you as a portfolio manager and analyst, your job never ends. You never know enough. So I think that you always have imperfect information and you just have to make assumptions about what information is the most important that you're looking at and what's going to, what are the, the, again, what are the key assumptions that are going to drive the value or drive the investment? But overall, you're always going to be wrong. Okay. At the end of the day, you're wrong. You're just trying to narrow, you know, the standard deviation of how far you're going to be wrong. But you want to be as accurate as you can and focused on the biggest assumptions. So when you're actually going to make these assumptions, what resources do you use to go about doing that? So one of the things I learned, uh, again, going through the program when I did, one of the things we always talked about is in the real estate in industry, let me back up. One of the things we talked about as I went through the program is in when you're trading publicly traded real estate securities, inside information is illegal. When you're real estate, inside information is essential. I was in the public market and I couldn't trade on inside information, but you could turn over that extra stone, make that extra call to try to learn something that someone else didn't know. So I had the, the wherewithal in terms of having my appraisal background and working with people like Mike Casey at a big firm like Heitman who was doing acquisitions all the time, that if I had a company where management said cap rates were this and we're growing rents at this, I could do background checks and talk to brokers in the market, look at the portfolio that Heitman owned, talk to the acquisition people to help understand uh, what was happening in the market, and that would play into my assumptions. So eventually you started to oversee a global portfolio, is that correct? Yes, yes. So I started as an analyst at Heitman, you know, underwriting, you know, stocks in all, just every major sector, whether it was the four main food groups of office, industrial, retail, apartments, but the market grew and there was self-storage, healthcare REITs, and it's continued to grow past that. Uh, again, there are data center REITs, uh, single, family, single family rental REITs, um, hotels, uh, data centers, what was I going to say, um, student housing, all sorts of different REITs that I was involved in. 
I was the portfolio manager domestically. So I ran a, a team of analysts who covered what was happening in the US, but the market was growing. So the REIT market, when I started, was strong in the US and it was growing slowly in Europe and growing slowly, slowly in Asia. There's a trade group in the US called NAWI, the National Association of Real Estate Investment Investors. REIT legislation is uh, part of the IRS tax code. So what you saw is different countries start to adopt something similar to REIT legislation. The UK adopted it, Germany adopted it, France adopted it, um, Italy adopted it, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Japan, Hong Kong, Australia. So all these countries started to get REIT legislation and suddenly saw the growth in terms of the number of companies and the size of the market grow in terms of publicly traded real estate securities outside the US. And our investors were saying, how can we increase our global exposure to real estate? Maybe without buying an asset directly. I said, we can invest internationally. So call it mid 2000s, I was with a firm at Heitman where it was very important for us to be hands-on, on the ground, in the markets to understand what was going on. We had a private equity real estate platform in Europe. And what we did is we hired a portfolio manager and analyst to work with that private team in, in Europe to understand what was happening in Europe so we could start investing in Europe. So I hired a portfolio management team in Europe. We had to do the same thing in Asia. First, we started with a joint venture with a group in Australia. It was expanding out of Australia into the total Asia Pacific region in terms of looking at publicly traded real estate securities. But then we actually hired that team and we based them in Hong Kong. So we had our team based in Chicago to cover kind of North America and South America. We had a team based in London to cover, cover uh, continental Europe and the UK. And we had a team based in Hong Kong to cover the Asia Pacific region. And so kind of mid 2000s is when we went global. So how hard was that to manage a global team? Like, did you run into any difficulties through that process or what did that look like? It's always difficult. Managing people is always difficult. And I think that you, one, first was the technical side of it uh, in terms of understanding how to underwrite real estate, underwrite companies outside the US. You know, how companies, not how they're valued, how you think through the underwriting assumptions and how things are discussed in London and Germany is very different than the US. So you had to kind of intellectually make that leap to understand what was happening in different markets and how to value those companies in Asia Pacific. And the other thing I learned is you just can't take your, your US view of the world and take it to London and say, this is how to do it. London is different. Tokyo is different. So you have to kind of be intellectually open to learn about different markets. And that takes you to the kind of the more human side of it. You're hiring people in different markets. And we always thought it was important um, to hire local people who understood kind of what was happening in those markets and how value and how investors reacted. But, you know, there are different cultures. So you have to be open and understanding to kind of uh, expand how you're going to hire people in these different markets and how you're going to manage these people in different markets, which again, not an easy thing to do, but pretty successful in terms of keeping people on a long-term basis. We never tried to cram people 
you know, a round peg into a square hole, right? Listen, you understand what's going in that market. How can we help you? And how can we support you in a long term? As long as you kind of fit into a big picture culture of the organization, we made it work. And specifically at Heitman, what was that culture like? You know, I think when I was at Heitman, their culture was very important. I think that goes back to one of the things you mentioned earlier. We had to have collaboration, had to have respect for each other. And that respect comes with, if you're in the investment industry, you have to have a variety of ideas coming in. You have to be, be able to present those ideas in an intellectually honest way and have an honest intellectual discussion about those investment ideas. You know, at the end of the day, it was generating strong risk-adjusted returns for the clients. So as a portfolio manager, I didn't have to win the argument all the time. What I had to do is make sure that we won as a team all the time in terms of generating strong risk-adjusted returns for our clients. So looking back on the entirety of your career, did you have a mentor at all? And what did that relationship look like? Um, you know, I had people in the industry um, that I would speak to, um, that I created connections with over a period of time that I could talk to in terms of what was happening in their career, what was happening in my career. And I did have, I would say, mentors or colleagues that didn't work at the same firm that I could talk to, you know, this is what I'm doing. What are you doing? What do you think the next step in your career is going to be? So, you know, it's the, the kind of little bit of the tricky thing in the read industry being a portfolio manager, it's pretty small and you're all competing against each other, right? It's a very transparent industry. So I know exactly what, I knew exactly what my performance was and I knew exactly what firm B's performance was and we were competing. So we always had to kind of keep a little bit of a glass wall, um, but I was at a firm that was large enough and had enough personal connections from the people I graduated with to talk through um, some of the questions relative to my career and their career and what was happening. So also looking back at your career, would you say you had any defining moments or moments that really stood out among the rest? Um, when I decided to join Heitman in the early 1990s, it was a kind of a 180 degree change from where I was. I had moved from the Midwest to Seattle and I loved living in Seattle. I liked my job in terms of what I was doing, but I knew that I, this was not going to be my career. And so when the opportunity arose to get into the read industry, I was like, okay, I don't know really what's going to happen. And they said, I'm going to have to either move to San Francisco or Chicago. And then it was going to be Chicago. You're going to Chicago. I was like, okay, you know, I was newly married, newly moved. It's like, let's do it. I don't really know what's going to happen, but let's just take this chance. And I think that taking some risk and say taking some chances with your career is always good, okay? It always pushes you a little bit more to meet new people, to get out there and feel exposed. I, you know, I, I know it sounds whatever, but take some risk in terms of what you're doing both personally and professionally. And that kind of looks at as someone I was on a panel a couple of years ago with someone who was a senior executive uh, at a large investment fund. And he talked about the people he wanted to hire. And he said, you know what? 
I want people who can solve problems. If there's a fire, I want people who are running at the fire, trying to put it out, not people running away. And in terms of thinking through my career, I think looking at new challenges in terms of taking on more responsibility is something that helped me, helped me always in my career. Don't be sedentary in terms of what you're doing professionally and kind of from an intellectual perspective, always look to learn something new. There was something I, I think I read from Warren Buffett, two things that stuck in my head um, and Warren Buffett, unbelievable investor, okay? One, when people are greedy in the market, be fearful. And when people are fearful, be greedy. The second thing that stuck in my mind that I, in a book I read is try to learn something new every day, okay? Something you read, whatever, some people you meet, something new intellectually that'll kind of, you'll think, oh, that was interesting. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And just backpedaling a little bit, like, so you started out in Seattle, you made the move to Chicago. Uh, how did you think about location with your career? Like, was it always just wherever the opportunity was? Or I, I like going back to what you said earlier, like, did you take a leap of faith or was Chicago where you wanted to be long-term? I'll look at this from a personal perspective and I'll also comment from an advice perspective to give um, people who are just finishing their degree. So I went to Seattle, okay? And I went there because I wanted to live there, okay? I thought it'd be a great place to live. And it was, okay? At the end of the day, the opportunity set didn't pan out exactly as I expected. And so I was presented with an opportunity um, with Heitman and they said, you're gonna move back to Chicago. So I had to really kind of balance that out, right? I'd love living in Seattle, it was a great place. Got to do a lot of different things. But the opportunity was fantastic with Heitman. So I decided to take the opportunity. And again, you can always change in terms of what you're doing and where you're living. And so your, your question, Luke, was go where you want to live or take an opportunity. My advice, yes, it's demonstrated my career, take that good opportunity. Okay, and if it's in a different place, we're not indentured servants, we can move. Take that opportunity where you think you're gonna learn the most, get great exposure, work at a great firm. You can change, if you can get going and meet a number of people, likely you're gonna change um, jobs and work for a different firm and it could be in a different city. So my advice, and I think I, followed it when I moved from Seattle back to Chicago, go where the opportunity is. You can always move, okay? A lot of people want to go and say, oh, go to the city you want to live in too. I said, I get it. But I will say that when I um, was working in Chicago, I had the opportunity, I had to work really hard. I didn't have a lot of time, right? And then I got a family going, so it would have been great to live in Seattle. And we did a lot of things when I lived there outside. But when my life got going, I just didn't have all that time to do all those things. So, you know, it's a balance and everybody will come to own. So I think it's a good time to transition into our closing round. Luke, I'll let you take it away. And now it's time for the Badger Buzz Round. Okay, so first question for you, Tim. 
you were mentioning some quotes earlier from some different books. What is your favorite book? Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Um, yeah. It, it was a book um, about Teddy Roosevelt. And I can't remember the author. I think it was called Call Me Rex. And Teddy Roosevelt, again, uh, president at the turn of the century. And what it, what was interesting to me about the book is, he, depending on where you look, he will be ranked as one of the most influential presidents since the democracy was formed in the US. He faced adversity kind of early on. He was kind of a, a scrawny little guy who had asthma and he overcame it. And he just forged ahead both physically and mentally and challenged himself and pushed himself to, again, be the governor of New York, he was something for the city of New York, and then vice president, and then became president of the United States. So I think the book is called Call Me Rex about Teddy Roosevelt. And do you remember the author? Was it Edmund Morris? Yes. Okay. It was Edmund Morris. Okay. So it's Theodore Rex is the name of it. Yeah. There were two books. Uh, one, as he became president, and then okay. there was a follow-up when he was president. But I think it was Edmund Morris who's the author. Okay. So the next question is, who is your favorite professor when you were at UW-Madison? So, professor? He's a professor now, right? So I went to school with Mark Epley, so Mark Epley's mine. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> He's going to like that one. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, how about when you were in school, who was your favorite professor in school? That's going to cost him. Um, I don't know. So I was in school during the transition. Um, professor Grasscamp had just passed away. Um, so I had taken some undergraduate with Professor Grasscamp, and he was an incredible individual. Um, so he was definitely very influential in terms of kind of keeping me interested in real estate and how I came back. When I started back in school, he had passed away. And so I think that during that period of time, when I was back in graduate school, there was an individual, two people, um, Mike Robbins and Carrie Vandell. Okay. And the last question is a little less sentimental. What was your favorite bar when you went to school at Madison? Um, now or then? then? Then, for sure then. So there were two places. One's been torn down. It was called Bucks. It was up near the Capitol. And I don't know if it's still around um, the pub. It was just off State Street. It might have uh, also changed. Yeah, that doesn't ring any bells for me. Yeah. What did Casey say? Yeah, Casey said the KK. Yeah, that sounds like mine. Well, this has been a great conversation. I would say probably one of the best conversations we've had on the podcast yet. Uh, so thanks again for coming on, Tim. Yeah, I agree. Are there any closing remarks that you want to make to people? I think it's important, again, go back to the uh, one of the things I mentioned earlier. A couple things that I've learned over my career, always be intellectually curious. You know, I would tell people if I knew everything, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, right? I'd just be sitting back, you know, at the pool someplace. Nobody knows everything. Always challenge yourself to learn um, something new. 
The other thing that I learned, um, you know, from an individual going through the global financial crisis, right? People make good decisions, they make bad decisions, or things don't work. Generally, in the decisions we're making there every day from an investment perspective, they're not as if, I, and I'm not trying to minimize this, that anybody's going to get physically hurt. Your investment decisions. You can make a bad decision and you can adjust and try to make it better. Okay. It's not life or death. Again, I'm not trying to minimize the decision, but if something goes wrong, change. Also, look at your career and evaluate kind of where you're going and think through a plan. You know, if you want to be someplace, um, you know, 15 years, it's hard to think much past that. Think through some, what are going to be some key milestones that I have to reach. So when I got into the read industry, I started as an analyst and I said, you know what? I want to run the business at some time. How am I going to do that? I said, okay, that means I have to get my CFA, Charter Financial Analyst. I have to become a portfolio manager. I have to understand all the different assets of the business. And then the opportunity prevailed itself when someone left. They said, you know what, Tim? We want you to run the business. So always learn um, and think through where your career is going. Plan out because things are going to change. Yeah, I think that's great. And again, thanks for coming on, Tim. We appreciate the conversation and we look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, thanks, Tim. That was awesome.